Hi, and welcome to episode 47 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Steve Lopez. Steve is not looking to make a pretty picture. For a work to be enduring, he says, there has to be a level of poison in it, some gritty quality that keeps you coming back. His powerful painting, which won the Gallipoli Art Prize this year, contains that little bit of poison. It lures the viewer with an evocative sunset, only to reveal the reminders of battle trenches and bits of detritus scattered across the landscape. Steve has been painting figurative work for over 20 years, starting at a time when it was decidedly unfashionable. He's been acknowledged by art critic John MacDonald as one of the most dedicated artists you'll find anywhere, and his outstanding works in his distinctive figurative style have captured the attention of art collectors and institutions alike. His work is held in the National Gallery of Australia, the Parliament House Collection, and other public institutions and private collections. He's exhibited in 30 solo shows across Australia and in London and Hong Kong, and his work has been hung in many more group shows. He's also known for his portraiture, recognised as a finalist in the Doug Moran Portrait Prize, the Black Swan Prize, Percival Portrait Painting Prize, and he's been selected in the Salon de Refusé exhibition several times. He has a solo show coming up in Sydney at Stella Downer Fine Art, which opens on 12th of July, so get to that if you can. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. He grew up in Sydney to migrant Italian parents, but we start this episode off a bit later when we talk about his life after Year 12 when he worked as a cartoonist, artist and court illustrator for News Limited, a job he held when he was still a teenager while he was studying at the City Art Institute, which is now University of New South Wales Art and Design. I remember there was a murder at Surrey Hills and five people were shot at Point Blank Range and I'd just come from a life class in the morning at art school yeah. and at one o'clock I had to go with, I think it was Miranda Devine, the reporter, to cover this murder up the road and, and the killer went into a cafe across the road and waited for the police mm. and I had to draw where they were shot for a graphic, you know, and, and I remember I didn't eat for the next couple of days, you know, mm. from what I saw and it was really pretty full on. You know, and you'd been um, quite young as well. Yeah. yeah, I was only 18, I think, at the time. And um, my parents were very scared of me going, being an artist, but after they saw my first couple of pay packets, they never asked another question again in my life. So it was good. <laughs> Gee, you must have been a good um, artist. Or you must have been doing a good job with those drawings. Well, yeah, and I think yeah. that, that deadline pressure and working under those, it was just you never knew what you were going to do when you came in, so you had to adapt really quickly. Mm. That's held me in good stead um, in, in the arts, you know, for what I do now. And, I, and that came from really good lecturers at art school. I used to just um, pretty much focus on life painting and life drawing. And I had a fantastic lecturer called Alan Oldfield who um, used to, he was a very figurative artist and he, used, he took me under his wing and taught me quite a lot about adapting to poses and getting oh, the sense yeah. and the essence of a movement and a a body position, and he put me on to Lucian Freud, who's one of my mm. heroes mm. as an artist. I love his work. What was his advice about having different poses in the in the painting? I mean, what? How would he? What yeah, would he, he taught say? he taught me about the composition, and it's not a photograph you're painting. It's not a representation. It's about there's a beauty to the paint quality that you're using. Think about the edges. Think about always, if you have a look at a lot of my figures in my paintings, they're always tipped over slightly. 
a lot of uh, mistakes a lot of figurative painters do is they paint the person upright straight away and it kills the pose, makes the, the composition a bit boring. Mm. And depending on where it's placed, I remember he showed me, um, bot, uh, no, what was it? Uh, Piero della Francesca, he put me onto him, mm. which was an amazing uh, uh, suggestion early on for a young painter. And he said, look at the size of the figure in, this, in the whole picture plane. It's not even a third of the image. It's mm. all this space around it. And it's the space around a figure and the background that actually makes the work come alive. It's not the actual figure. Everybody says that when you paint a portrait that you have some special understanding of the person you're painting, which I, I don't particularly agree with. And I think the best paintings some have a level of removal uh, of uh, sentimentality. Sometimes you don't, you shouldn't get too sentimental with a picture because it can be quite, quite gushy. So I was trying to- What do you to... mean? Like how would you get sentimental with a picture, do you reckon? Oh, it's, you put too much of your own thoughts on, and you look at it in rose-coloured glasses, the mem you know, depending you know, on the memories involved. And basically a good painter has to paint a really good image. And sometimes a good image has a little level of poison in it. It needs to be dark and it needs to have some level of interest to make it ongoing and lasting. You so know, what do you mean, like years. sort of ugliness in a way? A little like, bit, yeah. yeah. Not too pretty, you know, there's always place for prettiness, like a Matisse picture or something like that, which is beautiful. But I think with good figurative painting, there needs to be an extra level because photography's already done it so well now mm. that you need to have something that captures the person's attention for a long time. A, a good, there's a lot of good um, portraiture out there now that's quite photographic and you look at it and you're amazed by the technical quality. But then... It's a, a quick look. It just sort of blends in with the rest of the stuff. The good stuff, I think, has this grinding, gritty quality to it that keeps you looking at it on the wall for years to come. Congratulations on winning the Gallipoli Art Prize. Thanks. Uh, that work, Exposed Wood, Mont Quentin, was an absolute masterpiece in my view. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That that painting came out of the Western Front Tour, which you went on to, went on with a number of artists. I've actually done an episode about that, the yep. salient Western Front Tour, where you all went to areas in Belgium and France where, you know, the Western Front was in World War One, yep. 100 years on. Can you tell me a little bit about what actually happened there? Yeah, that was a really um, a crucial point of the, the First World War, a victory that came, you know, pretty much through Australian sort of uh, efforts mm. and led to the uh, Germans uh, going back to the Hindenburg Line. They captured 14,000 prisoners uh, there, German prisoners. Um, I think there was about 3,000 casualties. And pretty much after that, the Germans were, they were, you know, lost the war. I went to this little town there, St. Quentin, and we were there when the sun was going down and the, it was a, a nice little commemorative place but that didn't really um, uh, capture my imagination. We were walking back to the hotel, the sun was going down, and there was this little area which you could was sort of fenced off, and you could see little parts of old trenches that were there, and it was f sort of forgotten amongst this village. Mm. The French people were just going on about their lives. So and even was, 100 years later, there's still... Yeah, there's these areas it. which just sort of... They look like nothing. And there was these little mm. floating bits of paper floating through. We probably should just describe the painting as well. It's... it's um, it's actually sort of, un you're looking through sort of undulating ground. And now that you're saying that, it's like what trenches were, were there, but yeah. it's all undulating. You're looking through to a horizon, but there's all these leafless 
trees silhouetted against a beautiful sunset with that amazing sun. Um, is there like a focal point yeah, there that your the eye dark, goes yeah. to that? Yeah. Yeah, so that, well, you have those random pieces of, of now I know this paper. Yeah, that uh, floating paper, I guess, sort of to me summed up the spirit of maybe the ghosts that were there um, mm. and the fact that, you know, it's just part of everyday life. People are living amongst these um, pieces of land where people died, you know, and 100 mm. years on, I guess it was our job or our role in a way to how do we re-remember it and how do we add to that history or lexicon of Australian painting um, and war artists, I guess. Well, I wouldn't call ourselves war artists, more landscape painters. Mm. But um, to me, it all just clicked. And there's those little magical times or qualities when, you, when you're on these trips or painting in the landscape that sort of reveal themselves to you. And that's how, I think that's the stuff that gets lost in the art world, the, the magic of painting. Mm. Um, maybe, mm. you know, people seem to like that image, that painting. It didn't particularly take me long to do. I did a little study there in France at the time and brought it back to the studio and I painted this picture back in the studio here in Australia and it was quite quick. Normally sometimes I'll labour over images but that one just sort of painted itself. You know, uh, some pictures work and some don't and that one seemed to work. Yeah, and it's interesting when you say that it didn't, you know, that you almost surprised yourself with how it turned out. Yeah, I did. Is that right? It was just sitting here two two foot away from where you're sitting and I looked at that in the studio and at the time I just painted it and... It was just another painting and I, mm. you know, put it in and... Uh, so you didn't think after you painted it, wow, now that's that's amazing. I'm really, really happy with that. No, not at all. And I actually bought that to the salient project people, the curators, and I had 10 paintings and they've picked a, a six, I think, or five or six for the exhibition, which is touring, and they never picked that picture. <laughs> and I uh, came back and I was sitting in the studio. I go, now what do I do with it? So I said, I'll put it in the Gallipoli Prize. Oh. And it ended up, you know, causing all the stir and what Isn't have that you. Interesting. And that's what—that's the thing that I see. I love that those quiet stories, the paintings that people don't see, and all the the backstory uh, of, of that. And actually, there's another another backstory which I won't go into. But a big institution wanted to buy that painting and couldn't because um, it won the prize and it's acquisitive. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's, and then I've had about three or four requests to buy it and they can't because it's. Um, now in uh, the Gallipoli Club, which is a great um, collection. Yeah, it's a of, good place uh, for with, it. With some great things. So I think it's found its natural home. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that uh, sometimes it depends on the context that people see it or, you know, maybe w when they were choosing for Salient, you know, they had all your works mm. and then... It didn't jump out. It's it's sort well, of it just it's shows just how different people's um, particular tastes and what they like, and that's yeah, fine. I mean, yeah, that's why yeah. you never know as a painter what's going to work and what doesn't. I know what I like. Yeah. But sometimes you're so you get. I can't see my paintings at the end of them. I just spend so I'm so invested in them mm. that at the end of the day, uh, when you finish it, you don't even know if it's finished. Yeah. And sometimes that's best just to leave them. Um, you sort of end up. Well, well, the world will do what it does, you know, it'll choose a place for it or not. And yeah. so you just let them, as long as you're fully happy with it, and I, I'm pretty tough on letting them out the, the studio door, but then once they're out in the world, it's up to other people to read them as they, as they, as they want. Mm. My wife's very good. I Sometimes if I'm not sure, I'll call Leslie in, and she never says a word. She just gives it a look, the painting, <laughs> and just I can tell within one second whether it's good or not. She says, yeah, it's all right. 
If she says that, then I I turf it and start again. All <laughs> oh, right. You know, oh, she's so got it. I can tell within one second whether it's good or not. Yeah. So she's my final critic. Right. And do you let her see it when you're in progress? No, no, not so much. I don't really. I used to ask her advice a lot, but maybe I'm getting more arrogant as I get older. I don't <laughs> do it as much. I don't. Maybe I don't need to as much. But early on, yeah, I used to get her to see it from the word go, and as it built up. But now, only towards the end, at the very yeah. end. I, and yeah. with with portraits, do you find that like you were saying how you just you can't see them after a while? And do you find the same with portraits? Yeah, sometimes I think I've got a likeness. Well, I, I'm pretty good with likenesses. Often the person sitting sees themselves differently, which is the problem. And they uh, there's a whole dance that you go around with portraits. I'm a bit over portraits. Mm. I've done a lot of commissions. Yeah, how's and that? And I've has done a lot of things, a lot of portraiture. Now I just paint who I want to paint and mm. and I'll paint it my way and they like it, they like it. If not, you make a lot of – you make you, what's you start off with a lot of, lot of friends in portraiture <laughs> and you end up with a lot of enemies. <laughs> I won't name names. But what what maybe, do you mean they don't like it? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. A lot love it and a lot don't. And even though I know they're good paintings, it's just more about ego, more their own personal Mm. uh, ego. And so I'm not interested in those games. I'm more interested in the quality of a finished picture. And so you get tougher as you get older. You'll just put them out and whether you make an enemy or not from it, sometimes I know if it's a good picture and it's worth putting out for art purposes, I'll do it. But uh, You mean putting it out as in, in a competition or something? Well, no, just out in, in on view, you know, in an exhibition. Right. I'm not. The competitions are great, but they're not a be all and end all of the art. And I, I sort of just do it for, you know, as a discipline. I'm young enough to keep doing them, but I, I think there'll come a point where, you know, you've got to be seen in Australia, I think. And so they competitions provide a really good focal point and exposure for artists. Um, but there come a point where I just don't want to do it as much anymore. You mm, get, you know, mm. it's. Well, I suppose the difficulty with portraiture as well is that, you know, what do you do with the painting afterwards if that person isn't going to buy it, I suppose? Oh, I don't think it's that. I think it, first and foremost, it should be a good picture, a good painting. Mm. And uh, sometimes those portraiture awards can get a, a type of artwork and a, a certain type of selection, and so people paint towards that, and that's not good for art. You know, you end up with a type of portraiture that gets repetitive and then younger painters come in and try to replicate it purely because of competition. What sort of portraiture? What do you mean? More very, too photographic, um, too tricky, too much about, um, uh, you know, showing off, I think, in a way. Great portraiture, I think, is quiet and um, can still be contemporary and revealing and pushing it to the edge. And I think... Um, Competitions can be good and they can also be bad. And that, talking more from a pictorial point of view, not so what much. What do you mean? The formal qualities of a painting, the plastic qualities of a painting. You know, um, there's a graphic element that's coming through a little bit more with flatter backgrounds and more just about the details on a face, big heads, you know, all the normal stuff that everyone talks about, um, stuff that's coming through from younger painters. Um, there needs to be a relationship between the background and the foreground of a painting not just the, the portrait of the person. A great painting from Cezanne or Gauguin. Um, well, uh, even you look at um, uh, Marlene Dumas, it's all integrated. Mm. The background, there's a mood, there's a feeling. Mm. And they're not painting for competitions, they're painting just for a great picture. So, so, when you, so say you're going to compose a portrait, 
the background is just as important as the face oh, to you. Oh, definitely, yeah. And are you going to have composed that quite in quite detail from the beginning? Sometimes and sometimes not. I don't really believe as you get older about a prescribed way of working. And sometimes I catch myself painting for competitions. And that's where you've got to be really careful because I've seen it's happened to me. And sometimes, you know, as you said before, that picture that didn't get picked in the Doug Moran or Archibald of um, Warren Ellis. Mm. I, I love, you know, I really love that whole experience of painting him. And for me, that was a very successful picture, but not many people have seen it. Not mm. many people are that interested with it. Mm. Um, it wasn't super fashionable, but it's a lasting picture, I think. Yeah. And it'll end up somewhere at some point. Yeah. Um, and you ultimately have to be satisfied with why you're doing it. Mm. And that sort of just sort of built itself up, that picture. The background was just as important as the actual portrait of Warren. Mm. Um, and it grew. Sometimes I'll plan an image of, of a portrait and I have the best intentions. And sometimes, you know, the worst thing that can happen as a painter is you might have the best plan, the best intention of painting something and you carry it off. Doesn't mean it's going to be a great picture. You've just, yeah. done, you've just done what you set out to do. Doesn't mean it's any good. Sometimes the best stuff is the stuff that grows organically and the painting will tell you what it wants and what mm. it does. Often, the, you know, the, power, the, the paintings are more stronger than me. They'll tell you what to do. So would you find that's in terms of colour, say, for example, or what, or even placement of objects or...? Everything, everything. Yeah. You can't decide. Sometimes even you might, you might come into the... You might have a bad day and you come in angry into the <laughs> studio because someone's cut you off in traffic or, you, you know, your kid's got detention and they're mucking up at home or something like that. And you come in and that feeds into your painting and makes a mark that you could never have planned yeah. and it makes the whole picture sing. And mm. people often say to me, oh, you know, once you've got the picture 90% done, it's pretty good. Well, it's that last 1%. If you think that one last percent of a mark that you put on a picture can't affect the picture, then you're wrong. You know, sometimes it's only the last couple of touches that really make a picture sing. Yeah. And so you can't, you can't really um, base it on anything. It's colour, it's composition, it's the idea, the concepts that you initially had, it's the person you pick or the image you pick or the landscape you pick. Mm. Actually, talking about picking landscapes, I was watching um, some of that documentary by Bruce Inglis, which was Your Friend the Enemy, which yep. was from your trip to Gallipoli. Yep. And I found that fascinating because um, you were talking about a painting that you were doing of um, the area called The Neck yep. in Gallipoli. And you were basically painting, you know, a trench, Yep. which was just like dirt. <laughs> and what you, was, what you said about that, let me just get the quote because oh, I found that sorry. really interesting. You were saying that the boring areas are interesting to you because you can do interesting work if you focus on a small area and try to push it. Yes. Yeah. What do you mean by pushing it? Well, sometimes the most immediate view is, looks quite good, but it can be quite, what I was saying, sentimental or cheesy. I remember, you know, I heard from a friend, actually, I think it was, uh, uh, Jan Senberg's at one stage telling me that, you know, Fred Williams would go to a landscape, set up, face the most immediate thing that you would naturally look at, the scene, and then he'd turn his easel and paint the, other, the opposite view. And it forces you to look. It forces you to find something interesting. It forces you to really extrapolate on not much, and it pushes your skills. You can find a picture in anything. And um, if you're in an area such as that, the neck, you know, the sacred part of Australian history there where the Light Horse Brigade fought and all those men died, 
Um, it was just standing there was important. Mm. So for me, I wanted to feel like what was it like to be down in the dirt and focus on that trench area. And I managed to get some good pictures by um, um, being part of the landscape in a bit. You've, you've, the landscape reveals itself in its own way and not mm. necessarily just by the view, the most prettiest view. Yeah. There's a lot of good painters out there and there's a lot of you know hobbyists and people who um, will paint always the same sort of a scene, you know, from a certain point of view, eye level, the horizon, a sea, a bit of sun. Mm. It takes a really good painter to transport that and make it into something interesting. And that's maybe yeah. going lower in viewpoint or higher, blowing it up in a bigger scale or reducing it, putting something in there that activates mm. it or mm. not, making mm. it empty. That's mm. why even the you know, indigenous way of viewing the world in their painting is amazing. We talk about Rover Thomas and the way that it, it, it's so simple, but, you know, it's looking from above or yeah. is it looking from a horizon? Uh, what is it? And it keeps you looking. Yeah. It's amazing. Different of ways stuff. of seeing. So we're very lucky here in Australia to have that viewpoint and learn from it and also see it from a Western point of view too. I recently mm. painted up in Arnhem Land with, um, with Ewan and a, a couple of painters and we were um, um, invited by the Cannon Hill mob up there and the landscape... As you, you know, it's very important to them as a way of living. It's a resource. It's mm. not just a view. It's not just a place. It's their life. Mm. And we were very um, privileged to paint there. And you, you even just being there is special. Yeah. So when you're painting, you can see that um, you have a role and you've, you've really got to take those viewpoints that you're looking at in a very different way. Don't just paint it as obviously. Make it resonate within yeah, the way that yeah. you work. Do you find that travelling... Um helps you or makes you work in a different way, like when you're away from home? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, you see the world differently. You can't rely on any premeditated way of working. You have your sort of ways of working where you set up. I work on some small boards. I work in oils all the time and I'll use this drying medium within it so it's touch dry the next day. So you have to really be, um, it's a bit of a rough and tumble. You have to mm. just adapt. And so you can't rely on any any of your old skills, you just got to be there and do a finished work. Well, you, I've seen you, you work on the ground a lot. Is that how you often work? Yeah, yeah. So you, you sort of bend over the painting? Yeah, I don't have, a lot of the other artists will have tables and stuff, but for me, I'm not that fussed. I, it does hurt, it's, it's killer at the bend of the day, but sometimes it makes for a better painting because I use my arms more, I am use the body, the, the actual action that's involved. I'll just find... You always will find a nice place to plonk yourself down and you get a lower point of view mm. and you're actually within that ground. And you know that, all right, I've got two weeks to paint such, uh, for example, Western Front or I've gone to Italy. Well, I've painted in the middle of the Travestory area in Rome with tourists walking past, the history, <laughs> and it's just insane. It's people in your face, the yeah. traffic. Um, but you know you've got two weeks to paint, so I'll go hard and I'll kill myself for two weeks. But I know I'm going to come away with about 30 or 40 fantastic little works if I force myself. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. Um, but I think the finished result is the most important thing. Then mm. I'll go and have, um, you know, back treatment for four, for three months <laughs> afterwards. But they're the works. It's yeah. my job in yeah. a way. So you've got to put yourself like a miner or something into, a, into some hard um, positions and stuff. Um, if the end result for me it's worthwhile then I'm willing to sacrifice a bit for that. Well what I found really interesting was um, that trip you did with Ewan McLeod which you, I think you suggested to go to Scotland and, and paint for yeah. uh, 
like you gave yourselves two weeks, I think, was it? And then you had an exhibition in London. Yeah, like I had four friends. days later. Well, I, I did a bit of study in London. I mean, up in Scotland actually with Peter House, and I had friends there. And he's McLeod, so he wanted to find out a bit more about his, his Scottish background. And oh, we're good okay. mates, and we travel quite a lot together and paint. And we had two weeks. We had. I think it was 20 canvases each from uh, Windsor Newton provided it for us mm. and um, uh, in London and we had these empty canvases and we had to fill them. And then we drove down, I got a gallery in London there which we showed, it, showed them in and we just had to do the work because it actually got written up in the, I think the Times or something at the time, uh, which we <laughs> thought was really funny because we were just, you know, really shitting ourselves for the whole two weeks. What are we going to do? All these Londoners are going to see this work and we had blank canvases and we had two weeks to do them. But we painted. That is a lot of pressure. Oh, it was a nightmare. But we had a ball. We'd yeah. go and go to the west, the wild west coast of Scotland in the morning and then we'd paint two pictures. I remember at one stage we had to paint in pissing down rain. It was just drizzling constantly and then this storm came. We were halfway through our paintings and we said, and they were the big paintings too. We had two large canvases, and we'd already started. We couldn't run away. We had to finish this damn thing. <laughs> and we thought, oh, well, we're painting in oil, so oil and water they don't mix, so you can keep <laughs> painting in oil. But we were absolutely saturated wet, and we finished our work. And then we went and had a, a, a I think it was a beer, and a, we were wringing wet. We went into this little pub in the middle yeah. of the day, and they just looked at us two mad guys, driz, just drenched it. And we sat by the fireplace, had a pie and a, a beer, and then we went back out in the rain in the afternoon. Oh, really? We had no choice. We were at Danua, near Danua Castle, I remember that. Oh, and we yeah. went to this little, there was a little port village there. Yeah. And uh, so it was about an hour's trip, and we said we didn't come all this way not to paint. And then we came home miserable, wet, but we had two good, two or three good <laughs> paintings. Yeah, what were they, did they look different from the others? Yeah, they did actually. I think we both sold them and um, yeah. they were really good and they were both the main pieces of the show. And then all these Londoners came and saw the work and I think they could see the energy in the work and the fun in it. I just wanted to talk to you about your mark making, which I noticed from that video also that you use, um, you use a combination of like brush, palette knife, um, your fingers, an iTunes card. Do you think that's essential for your for your paintings to have that combination? Yeah, I think uh, the best paintings have a, a, a thousand different marks. You look at the Monet's water lilies and there's no real one point of entry for that mark. It's just all over the place. Yeah. Big brush strokes, small ones, globules, and whatever you can get to make a good painting get over the line is fair game. So I'll use I'll use kitchen implements. I'll use plastic cards, which I can throw away, which scrape across. I'll mm -hmm. use the brush. I'll use thick brushes. I'll use small ones for detail. I've learned over time. I used to start off, now this is, I, I love Jeffrey Smart. He was one of my heroes when I was younger. Yeah. But then I find that it's a little uh, very composed for me as I get older. It's very straight up and down. And then I started to get into people like uh, Auerbach, who paints completely different from what I paint. But I saw that there's, it's wild. There's amazing passages. He blots parts of the canvas with newspaper mm. and you get this dead quality and then this huge mark over the top. Mm. It's, just a, it's just so exciting, paint yeah. marks. Do you and that's do you part of the reason why uh, it keeps you engaged every day in the studio. So whatever I can use to get an interesting painting, I'll use it. Yeah. And will that be after sort of stepping back, looking, and then you make a decision? about that or is it just like do you think more of an instinctive well probably 
I, I'm probably quite, uh, I'm not as uh, free-flowing as everyone thinks. In the landscape I am, I'm quite expressive. But when it's a studio picture, it's a studio picture. And so I probably think about them a lot more. And they're different types of paintings. And I'm not so concerned about marrying the two. Some of the ones outdoors and the quick uh, liberal sort of paintings inform my more considered ones. Mm. And so... Well, we're looking at some now. The that, ones out in the landscape, I don't even yeah. think about. I just plonk myself down and paint. And yep. then some of the studio ones, I do the same. And sometimes I don't. It depends what the, the painting is. If it's mm. a landscape, if it's a figurative work with 10 figures in it, if it's uh, a sh painting of just debris and maybe some shacks mm. like I've got up on the wall there. Yeah. Um, they all... Every picture requires something different. What about when you talk about those paintings with, like, say, ten figures in it? Like, have you carefully composed that before you start? Because I could imagine having multiple mm. figures would be quite problematic. Yeah, yeah, those ones I do, and then half of my ideas I just paint them out as I'm going, <laughs> and then I just oh. make it up as I go along. Sometimes a certain part of the painting, a little corner where I thought a figure might go, it's not working. It's too cramped, and so I'll just paint it out, and maybe that space all of a sudden makes the other nine figures really sing. Mm. Or sometimes I might put a dog in there instead of where the figure was, or a little piece of junk. And it's artistic license. You can do whatever you want. You know, there's no pre-prescribed way that I have to work. Mm. Maybe people think I should paint a certain way if, I'm, if they've seen a certain amount of my work early on, but I don't care what they think. I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. Mm. You, look at, you, know, you look at Picasso, how constantly changed. And people sometimes say they hated his, his final pictures towards the end. I love them. I think there's some stuff there that's completely different than he ever did. Mm. And he was 80-odd when he was doing them. And he couldn't care less. that He'd already made his fame and fortune. He sat, he sat away there with Jacqueline in his little studio there in the, uh, on the top of a hill in the south of France. And just constantly painted and changed. He didn't care who was looking at them. Yeah. And I think towards a, to a degree, you've just got to turn off and paint what interests you. Do you and think surprises you? you. Do you so you find you don't think of the the viewer when you're doing it? Not so much anymore. No, I used to when I was young, and sometimes I'd look over my shoulder as I was painting, and you start to plan things. As you get older, you get a certain level of confidence mm. in what you're doing, and. Um, you know, being a figurative painter early and never got much support and I had to do it stubbornly. Because mm. um, it wasn't as fashionable back then, was no, it? No, yeah. no, not at all. And, uh, you know, you cop a lot back then. People don't see the sacrifices that you bring to yourself and your family because of those choices. That comes a point where I'm over what people think and I'll do it and I'll even die on, those own, on my terms in that sense. Mm. And things have been going well and I'll just do what I do. And that comes from that sticking to your guns to a degree. Mm. And then saying that, you've also got to be open to change and new things. Mm. And that's well, we almost a knife edge. So you've got to be aware of that too. Yeah. Well, we were talking earlier about um, your experiences playing cricket as a kid and you were saying that that sort of set you up. For, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I was, a, I was a, a good grade cricketer when I was young, very young age. I was, you know, something I was even considering being a cricketer, funnily enough. And I was 15 and an opening batsman and uh, playing grade cricket against grown men and they would sledge you. Just like, you know, what's happening in the Australian cricket team at the moment. Yeah. It's just part and parcel of grade cricket. And I was going, if I let this get to me, I'm not going to perform on the field. And there you have to perform, you know, it's your job. Yeah. And I learnt really quick, really fast. And the art world is pretty tough. There's a lot of tough people out there and it's very competitive and it's hard. The number one thing is the work. You know, if you go out and play cricket and you score 50 runs, you've scored 50 runs. 
but you don't have to be that great sometimes in the art world to succeed. Mm. Um, you know, for me, my marker is doing a good work. That's the, the number one thing that I can do. And what anybody else thinks of me, I don't care. After that upbringing in the grade cricket, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to be popular, you're not going to be fashionable and, and, and everyone's going to love you. So you get used to it. I think a lot yeah. of artists worry too much about what people think of their work. So for me, the number one thing is, am I happy with the work and am I pushing it? And there's a marker of skill for me that I need in my work to really be happy. And that's all I can do. Mm. So you've got to develop a thick skin, you think? To, definitely, to definitely. Well, you're doing it day in, day out. Mm. A lot of people like to go to openings and talk to the artists and they think it's all wonderful and what a glamorous lifestyle. But then they go away the next day and you're in the studio and you've got to go back and work. Mm. You've got to do this day in, day out, eight hours a day, whatever it is. So you've got to find some level of enjoyment and why are you doing it? Sometimes I wonder in the art world why there's some people in it. They don't look like they're enjoying it. And I'm talking curator, I'm talking uh, artists, I'm talking a lot of people. Yeah. It's more the idea of the art world or the art. Um, and there is a, a, a brutality to art constantly doing it in your life. Nobody, nobody asked us to do it, you know, so I mm. don't ask for any favours. Um, mm. Nobody asked me to be a painter, so I don't, there's no guarantees. Mm. So I have to be enjoying it and get, really want to be doing it, and I do. It's just nothing I would rather do in the world. Why would yeah. I want to do anything else? Yeah. It's and what I love. Yeah. And um, I think sometimes a few people should, you know, question why are they doing it, and it comes down to a really um, beautiful thing that I'm here doing this painting because I, like, I love doing it, and that's mm. all that matters. You've got a few etchings in the National Gallery of Australia. Mm. Uh, and they are absolutely divine, I must say. Oh, uh, you, you must. Do you find that informs your paintings at all? If you did an, do, would you Definitely. do the etching first? Definitely. I work with Tom Goulder from Duck Print Fine Art down in Port Kembla, and I, I go down there every every two weeks on a Friday. Okay. And I've been etching with him since 90, 1997, Every few weeks, and um, I think I've done about eighty etchings, or close to ninety or hundred. And um, I find that the line and that patience that's needed. Um, it's a different line. You can't see what's the final result because you're scratching into a black metal plate. Mm. And so you've all, almost got to think in reverse. And it's complete opposite of painting, which is more instinctual. And you see the mark and adapt it and change it on the canvas. Whereas there you have to wait and then you're surprised. And there's mm. this level of excitement that you get through etching. And I do cross hatching. It's quite simple. I do use white ground and different techniques. But I find that build up of tone, the line work, the finery that's needed um, really allows me to keep uh, that patience into my paintings. Because in my paintings, design and patterning is really important. Mm. And I find I'm super patient in painting and etching and the creative side of things. Then I step out of the studio in the real world and I have no patience. <laughs> You've seen me in traffic <laughs> swearing at the other people and my wife makes fun of me. I've got no patience at home. <laughs> Um, you know, it's really weird how you can be so patient in one level of your work yeah. and in the real world, in life, um, I, I am like a fiery Italian. I have no patience at all. I don't really draw a lot. I basically mm. just etch and paint. So when you etch, so when you're etching, you're not doing it from a drawing. So uh, I've never done etching before. No, it's a, you, you might do a little initial drawing and you mm. put it over a metal plate, but you're basically drawing straight onto oh, a metal okay. plate, a copper plate or a zinc plate. And it's going to come out etch, backwards. And it comes out and, yeah, you're painting, you're scratching the black out and you're seeing a white line of the metal coming through. Oh. Then once you etch it, 
those grooves hold the black ink and then it comes out in reverse from what yeah, you yeah. imagine. So you've almost as an imaginative quality to working out the design beforehand. You're and almost um, uh, preempting or trying to predict what it'll look like without actually seeing it. That's great. Mm. Actually, that's actually quite exciting. And also, yeah, it is. It's fantastic. It puts this un level of uncertainty, which really must spark that creativity. Yeah, and it's old school too. I mean, the, the, it's a dying art. I mean, it's so popular. It's not getting taught as much. It still is in art schools, but it's just the level of knowledge that these printers have. There's about, I would say, you know, about eight to ten really great printers in Australia who have that knowledge. Mm. Uh, it's passed down, and it's getting. It takes a, a, life, a lifetime. So that's why I work with a master printer. He has all that understanding of what it will look like in the acids and the techniques. I provide the, the, you know, the content. And a mm. lot of the painters that I know, they'll work with some great printers in, in you know, universities or on their own independently. And you know, it's a collaboration. So that's what makes it even more exciting. Oh, I didn't know that. So what, what input do they have into it? Oh, they will, they'll come up with the different techniques that a certain image that you've got planned might uh, benefit the final image. They'll, it's grounding the, the, the plates, it's putting the tone on when they're actually printing, the colours that are used, mm. uh, plate tone and wiping it off is a real art. That level of uh, just understanding of times for acid to, to make a line. Uh, dry points, it's, it's a myriad yeah, of all right. these techniques. It's just too too yeah. complex to go through on a podcast. It takes a lifetime to learn. Yeah. A lot of people can do it, but they don't have that real understanding yeah. um, that's needed. Uh, and they need to be just as devoted as a, a good painter would, I guess, which yeah. takes a lifetime to learn. And so why would you – so so why don't you draw? Is there a reason you don't draw as much? You're just not, you're not interested in it? There's a lot of good drawers out there, and they spend a lot of time on it. Um, the preparatory drawings that I do for paintings, I pretty much just do them straight onto the canvas. Oh, right. I'll do little sketches. Everything yeah. that I come up with is off a thumbnail. I never work, most of my painting ideas for a figure in a landscape or a composite of images which, which I put together are all done through little tiny sketches like thumbnails with oh, no detail. Yeah. yeah. Then I get an idea and then I'll get a model in or um, I'll work from a landscape out plain air and then work off studies or I'll take photos and get the model in and try to pose them off that. Mm. Um, so drawing is just a tool for me to get the picture mm. done. Yeah, you were saying, we were talking earlier and you were saying that patterning is important in your work. Well, it creates repetition. Um, it uses up space within an, uh, uh, the canvas and keeps the eye interested throughout an image. Sometimes there's a lot of flat space and that works with a Rothko. It's something different. It opens up a picture. Mm -hmm. But then also you look at the, uh, you know, the design of a, a nautilus shell and that spiral that keeps going around. Nature's full of repetition, a leaf. Yeah. Um, all that patterning that we don't even realise is out there in the world, a tree. Look at the bark and the, the beauty in that. If you can replicate that in a painting through... It might be just slats of wood mm. and the verticals and the horizontals or the spirals and all that. It really can make a picture interesting. Well, also in this painting we're looking at, actually, it's a, it's a beautiful painting. It's got a, uh, it's a landscape with three figures and then into the background you've got this uh, mountains and they've got clouds, actually. Yeah, clouds. Clouds yeah. within the mountains. So, in other words, we're elevated really high. Um, but one of the things I, I, that captures my attention and um, I think this is a mark of a really good painter, is the ability to be able to inject small patches of um, very 
vibrant colour that is not necessarily seen in the rest of the painting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they're, the, they're the, almost like a, a composition. You can use colour as composition. If you put a big bright, you've got a dark greyish type picture and you put a big blob of orange and it doesn't stand out, but it does in a way, yeah. all of a sudden it makes the picture alive than yeah. just a plain grey picture. Um, if you know what colours go with what, you know, like green is the opposite of red and you put red in one corner of a painting and then you balance it up vertically with a bit of green, they sing off each other and they create a tension. Yeah. So understanding colour is really important as a tool as well. Mm. So you're leading the eye around a picture. So here you can see there's a bit of orange amongst all this grey dull grass. Now that activates that whole area of dull grass. Exactly. And I only needed to put one mark. Exactly. So there's an economy of mark as well. And that comes just from experience. I've, I've put a lot of colours in before and put too much in. Now that mm. picture's only half done. There's still a lot to do and I have to balance one side with the other. So you're working across the whole image at one, in, not in just one area. So for me, I need to go be across that whole canvas space continually and they all make balance out and make sense. So to you, it's important that you're constantly working the whole painting and you don't just mm. work on one small section at a time. No, no, I'm yeah. always balancing it. And that's why sometimes some pictures take a long time and sometimes it all makes sense really quickly and some uh, are real quick. Yeah. But you're always juggling. It's like being, a, you've got to be a good juggler. And um, sometimes uh, people can focus on one area and they'll do it really well and um, build up detail, 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 but then it's a, just a, too much of a detailed picture. Mm. So if you're sort of balanced in one area, sometimes I think I'm going to do all this detail in an area and I've worked on the other area. I come back to that initial place that I thought I was going to spend all this time on and I don't need to because it's balanced up on the other side. And so that's those choices you make as a painter that yeah. you can't see coming. And it only comes from working across the whole picture plane at once. Yeah, exactly. That's really good advice. And what, um, and how do you find um, working to a deadline? Like say you've got a show coming up, do you, do you work right to that deadline or do you find that you've sort of more organised? I'm probably a little bit more organised. You can see my studio is not one of those messy ones. No, it's beautifully uh, I like, tidy. I was in New York and I, you know, I saw, you know, you know, Chuck Close is another one who I love, and he's got a very tidy studio. Yeah. And I'm working with ten to fifteen paintings at any one time that you have to be ordered because you're doing glazes, details, patterns. And mm. um, when you're sort of working representationally, you have to sort of be aware, step by step to some degree. It doesn't just come straight off the brush. Mm. So I need to be organised. And the same too with the shows. I tend to have a lot of the work done a year or so before and then it allows me time to keep working on a picture. I I'm, I'm oh, often don't work up to a deadline. Time. And as yeah. I get older, I just have whatever pictures around, I'll put them in a show. Oh, okay. And, and I like Giacometti just used to do uh, his work and whatever he had there, that was the show. He didn't work to a theme. He didn't work to a certain amount of... He just worked on the paintings. And some mm. paintings, I'm reworking a painting there that's taken me five years. And why do you think that's been hanging around for five years? Because it just hasn't been finished to the level that I want it. I could have sent it out a year ago, but then I would have looked at it if it was in a book or in someone's collection and not been happy with it. And then I would have had no control over it at the end. Mm. So maybe it's a control thing to do a, to a degree, but some pictures are just, you know they're finished, you think. But this one, I just knew it just needs more time and I'm not gonna rush it just for the sake of rushing it because you'll get something else. If you try to finish it, 
a picture. Sometimes I find myself doing that. I'm trying to finish a picture because I'm a bit sick of it and we're almost there. Let's just push it. But you wreck it Mm. Um, and Mm. you're just bashing away and bashing away. It's just not happening. And then you put it away. I often put my pictures away for a couple of months and then I look at them and all the thing that was troubling you at the time, you're not even seeing it. You're looking at something else. Yeah. And that thing that was bugging you, you might just put one big mark over it and you fixed it. You know, it's sometimes hard. I get better as you get older. It's really easy to paint over something. I might see that there's 15 hours work in a section of painting that I've been spending while people have been going about their jobs and days. I've just spent a couple of days on this air, on this painting and I just say, nah, it's not good enough. And I paint straight over it and I see all those hours under that brush. And I go, what did I do that for? In the past when yeah. I was young, I would leave it. I'd say, no way, no, I've spent... 15 hours I'm leaving that but then it's a shit picture exactly so you've got to you know that 15 hours taught me never to do that section like that again I see that as almost a tool of going to university maybe or learning or doing a master's in a certain thing that's been valuable because I won't make that mistake again Mm, mm. so sometimes that's what you learn you you reason with yourself with those lost hours and that's part of painting you're going to have a lot of lost hours yeah and if you feel like you've wrecked a painting uh would you generally try and sort of resuscitate it or would you sometimes abandon it i try to resuscitate it sometimes all that mistakes underneath and level of grit and ugliness can sometimes turn around with your least expectation. So I might put it away and then I'll come back to it and I might paint over a certain part of it and all of a sudden that makes sense with the new stuff that I'm painting over it. Yeah. So I'll never abandon something fully. Sometimes you just know it's a bad painting and I just mm. get rid of it. Mm. There's just no helping it. But 80% of them I'll really keep trying. Yeah. And you were saying before that um, you don't want to send out something that you're, not, you're going to regret later that it's out there. Uh, I mean, I suppose with the internet now, this is mm. a problem, you know, mm. because they're out there and they're sort of online. Um, is that something that you really think about? Like you would not, it's important to you to make sure you're proud of that and you're not going to regret it? Yeah, now it is. Now it is. When you're young, you can you think you can do anything and you think every work's amazing, aren't I great? You know, and then you put it out and then you look back on that 10 years and go, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> you know, and there's things that you can't help, you know, restriction, you know, you, a new gallery wants to take you on and you mm. have to do this show and you rush it and two or three works just get out there that just weren't your best. Mm. And there's a level of reality. Not everything you do is great. Some people will say it is, you know, they're kidding themselves. But there's a same with musicians, you know, it's like the B-sides. Yeah, exactly. You know, not, not everyone's a hit. And so now with the internet, they're out there. But you just got to, I think, you can't be precious. No, you, you got to. You've got to live with it. And it's all a learning part. There's a lot of stuff from artists who are amazing and they're not that great, but they've overcome that. You know, there's some famous Australian painters. Boyd did a lot of Shellhaven, you know, smaller pictures, mm. which he put out on the market. hasn't affected him in any way. No. He's an amazing painter, well, highly exactly. regarded. Well, exactly. I mean, I think just you happens just, to everybody. You just think, well, that's not, I mean, you don't look at an artist's work and think, Oh, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a terrible pain. You just think, oh, well, that's probably not as successful as that one. Yeah. That's all. I think you know. the artists, are the, they're, they're the harshest critics. And yeah. so for us, we probably take it a little bit more personally. Yeah. Um, but you, you, there's a level of, well, I'm mm. doing better pictures, you know, now and I'm, you know, I'm happy with what I'm doing or, mm. you know, you don't necessarily have to be happy. I know a lot of painters 
who are never happy with anything they do, but they're amazing works, and that's a good thing. Yeah, doubt is crucial in your armoury as an artist. You really have to have doubt and doubt yourself, otherwise you're going to paint pretty average pictures, I think. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today, and um, it's been so great to be in your studio and see these wonderful paintings. And um, good luck with your shows coming up later this year. Thanks, Marie. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Steve Lopez as much as I did. Go to talkingwithpainters.com for the show notes of things we talked about in the show, as well as details of Steve's current and upcoming shows. I'll also be getting a short video online of Steve in his studio in the next week or so. It'll be on the YouTube channel. Just search Talking With Painters playlist on YouTube. And I'll also be posting um, parts of that video on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter as well. As always, thanks to everyone who has messaged me and commented on social media and those who've taken the time to rate and review on iTunes. It really makes a big difference to get the podcast out to more people. Hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters. You go to the Louvre, you go to, you know, the National Gallery in London and you keep looking at those Rembrandts, you keep looking at the Gauguins, the Cezannes. Now, what is it that still captures our attention, you know, 150 years on from a lot of those painters? There's something magic and special about it. And that's what um, I'm really interested in, capturing those spaces of magic and time all through the, the, the human element.